Welcome back to Sit Down Startup Podcast. I'm Pedro. And I'm Tara. On this show, we bring inspiring stories from leaders in the startup space in a casual coffee shop style conversation. You'll hear how founders, makers, and investors are building the new generation of disruptive startups. No matter where in the world you are, on this show, you learn how the most innovative companies are growing their business, putting their customer first. And how leaders are solving the vast majority of challenges that a startup faced in the early days. In today's episode, we have Brandon D. Anderson, founder and CEO at Rahim. Did you know that 93% of people who experienced police brutality did not report it? Rahim addresses this problem by providing a service and solution that independently reports police misconduct in the United States. I'm curious to learn how Rahim is leveraging AI to bring more justice to our society. AI can be used for good. To talk with Brendan, we invited Tiffany Epsinski, VP of Public Policy and Social Impact at Zendesk. Don't go anywhere. Let's sit down and start up. brand and we can get started. And so the way we like to open up all of our podcasts is to ask you, um, what is your favorite coffee shop drink? Oh, my favorite coffee shop drink has probably, I don't drink coffee a lot, uh, but I do love a mean hot chocolate. Um, so that is probably between that and uh, like a caramel macchiato, uh, something that's sweet, and I don't like tasting the coffee. It's a really <laughs> thing. Yeah. yeah, that sounds like the right way to drink coffee. I think I'm on the on the same page as you as far as that goes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for being on the podcast. We're really excited to have you here. We are honored to have you here. We're uh, I, I'm just so excited for our listeners to learn more about Raheem. And so with that. Can you share with us more about Raheem and the problem you are solving? Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. I fell in love for the first time when I was 15 years old to this tall, skinny, big-headed black boy I first met in third grade. And falling in love with him was like falling asleep in class. You know, it's not something I meant to do. It's just something that happened. And we went through just about everything together. We got through high school together. We lived homeless together. And some years went by uh, and we were still together. Six, seven years later. And I was in the army at the time and he was a painter, still in Oklahoma. And in 2006, he asked me to marry him. And it was the happiest day of my life. I still remember what he looked like what he wore, uh, and I still wear the necklace he gave me every day. I've never taken it off. 
And it was at that time that I felt like the rest of my life was set. I was going to be with a man I met in third grade for the rest of my life. On the corner of 36 and Cold Train in an abandoned house next to a used car dealership. That's where I fell in love and that's where I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with him. And in 2007, he was killed by police. And he was killed by police during a routine traffic stop. He was driving home from work. And getting the call about that night is something I'll never forget. I was still in my military uniform and I had this bewildered look on my face that was because I was so confused. I was confused because I was, I was miles away in Seattle, Washington, and how could I have ever let this happen? How can I let this happen and be in the and be a part of how can this happen to me and be a part of one of the strongest military forces in the world? How could I run through desert after desert in Kevlar and uniform and be able to execute on military orders? superbly and not be able to protect the person I cared the most about. And that was the first moment that I knew uh, nothing about what my life was going to be like in the future. So I, I moved from being completely confident to having no confidence about what my future would be. And though that experience, I think, doesn't happen, you know, the experience of losing your partner doesn't happen to everyone, but to many Black people in this country, around the world, that feeling of moving from a place of knowing exactly what your life is going to be, and then in the blink of an eye, it can change in the matter of seconds under uh, white supremacy, under the culture and gaze of, of anti-Blackness. And, and that feeling is a feeling that Black people know really well. And I was met with that feeling again when Eric Garner was strangled on live TV and the only person that went to jail was the person who recorded the video. And I was on my couch and I just started crying. I was in George, I had, I had left the military, been kicked out, in fact, because I was queer. Uh, 
joined, uh, you know, started, uh, you know, community college in Seattle, had, had moved to Washington, D.C. because I transferred to Georgetown University, where I finished out my sociology degree. But before I did, I took a break and I spent six months in St. Louis. And the six months I spent in St. Louis taught me more than I had learned at Georgetown my entire tenure there. Uh, and so coupled with these two events in my life uh, is really what moved me uh, to be involved in this work. Well, Brandon, your story is incredible. It's heartbreaking. And I, all of us just, I think, are in awe of your strength and resilience. It's almost unimaginable that someone who would experience so much pain and and all of that fear of being black in the United States, of really being black in the world, you know, is, is there at the surface, at the forefront of your mind. And here it is like tangible for you. Yet you found a way to take that experience and funnel it into creating what, what really an organization, Raheem, which is solving a very critical and life-saving saving problem for society. And so when, when did you realize that you were going to take the culmination of these experiences and dive into helping to solve for it? Yeah. Uh, great question. I got a, a friend of mine told me about who the officer was. I had already known the name, but a friend of mine, uh, found out that that officer, um, that that officer patrolled a different part of my neighborhood, but that neighborhood is um, is where my cousins play now, right? So I have a big family, and and so the officer is currently still employed uh, as an officer, and now patrols a community where my cousins enjoy a playground. And when I learned about that, I, I started digging, digging a little more. And it turns out that many people in my neighborhood knew about this police officer, knew him by name, in fact, uh, knew that he had a, a, a history of being violent, particularly during traffic stops. And so we knew, you know, the community I learned knew that this was not a police officer you ever wanted to be stopped by. And it, it turns out, I, I said, well, has, if the community knows about him, there must be some record of him being, being violent. We can use this in, 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 in a lot of ways to see if we can move this police officer out of my cousin's uh, neighborhood and to a different beat, particularly considering the history of our family with this officer. And uh, it turns out that no one had reported him, in fact, and this isn't uncommon, but the police station in Oklahoma said you have in order to file a complaint against this police officer or any of our officers, you have to come in person during business hours within 90 days of the incident happening, which is unnecessarily difficult, intimidating and wholly unrewarding. And when I learned that this was the case for uh, for most of the residents who live, uh, you know, and who want to report to any of the 18,000 police departments in the United States, 
turns out that less than 5% of people report police violence. And this really produces some grave consequences. I think one of them we know a little bit about, but the other one we aren't too familiar with. One of them is, uh, the one we know about is if an officer's behavior is not made visible, it becomes incredibly difficult to prosecute that officer, right, as an individual, or to get justice in any way for the individual who uh, was a victim of, of their violence. But the other problem or consequence of having a low reporting uh, percentage or turnout, it is that policies are made based on that complaint data. So like, let's take, for example, uh, Eric Garner being strangled in the, uh, in the chokehold that the officer used. That was not a hold around the neck that was illegal. In fact, it was legal. And what ended up happening is that policies, you know, had that policy been uh, that it was illegal, the officer would have been prosecuted. So what ends up happening is that city governments will take experiences that are being had by their residents, see whether the officer is behaving within the guidelines of the policy, and if they are, and that policy still produces harm within the community, then they will shift that policy in favor of uh, of, of, of a harm reduction. But what ends up happening normally is that if you have less than 5% of people who are reporting police, you do not have the lived experiences of most of everybody in your city. And so those policies tend to be dangerously short-sighted and only consider a fraction of the real experiences. And I'll close by saying, uh, by sort of naming what those experiences are. The 5% of people who actually end up going in, you, you know, end up being two types of people. They are the people who have had egregious cases happen to them. So they are all right with going through the unnecessarily difficult or intimidating process of filing a complaint because they've gone through the worst, right? And then, the, or there are the, and the research proves that White, straight, cisgendered men are the people who can take off work during business hours within 90 days and have the confidence to walk into a police station to file a complaint. So it's fine. So what ends up happening is that policies are shaped only with the mindset or the experience of these two groups of people, which mean that 95%, everything in between, those policies are dangerously short-sighted and not reflective of the lived experiences of most people in their local community. Uh, absolutely. And, it, and yeah, I, I absolutely can see the, we all see the detriment of having something as critical as reporting police brutality primarily reported through the lens of privilege. Um, how does Raheem help change reporting on police brutality? Yeah, great question. Well, I founded Rahim in memory of my partner um, as the independent service for reporting police in the United States. Uh, we built tools that help communities report police easier and safer and allow them to leverage the open complaint data to advance policies that shrink the role of police and invest in alternatives that respond to conflict with care. And so some examples of that 
when a person, uh, so in terms of uh, in a, a couple of examples of our tool, one tool uh, that we have right now is fairly basic and we've had it now, we've launched it uh, about a year and a half ago. 2019, we built Rahim.org. It's a platform. You go to our website and you can report uh, You can report a police officer. We ask you three types of information, sort of what's the basis of what happened, who was the officer, and then if you want to tell us who, you know, give us some demographic data about you, which is optional, but it helps us understand how police treat people like you. Uh, and uh, and then when you report to us and you report police violence to us, we get you justice and healing. And so that looks like we connect you to a free lawyer. We help you file a formal complaint against the police officer anywhere in the United States. And then we unite you with the local advocacy organization. And our goal is to move you from being a victim of, a, of police violence to an advocate for abolition. The second bigger part here, remember, we had that policy issue at the beginning, right, that was still some dangerously short-sighted uh, legislation around, um, uh, around public safety and policing together. Well, we then, uh, we then engage and build partnership and coalition with community organizations across the country to leverage the open data though the open data being the thousands of reports now from more than 200 cities across the country. And we teach them to leverage that data to advance policies in their favor that are reflective of the experiences of the people who reported uh, to Rahim in that area. And that, again, shrink the role of police and expand alternatives uh, to responding to conflict with care. Now, what does that mean is a question that might come up. So let me just answer. What does it mean to advance alternatives that respond to conflict with care? Well, one example is we conducted a three-month study uh, with the Oakland Police Commission, which is, the, uh, which is a government body appointed, um, uh, you know, the people who are appointed on it are only civilians with no ties to the police but they, ha they have the power to hire and fire the police chief, change uh, existing or write new policy about the police department, and then in some rare occasions, discipline police officers. They contracted us for three months to conduct a three-month study about uh, the experiences that Oakland residents were having and, uh, and then what changes, if any, they'd like to see to the use of force policy. Uh, we produced just last month uh, the final report, you can see it on our website at Rahim.org. Uh, but what we found is these 10 policy recommendations include things like don't send armed, uh, armed police officers to conflicts that don't involve any sort of violence. If there is a person who is only threatening to hurt themselves, use of force is unnecessary. And we're also going to ask them uh, for the, a final example, is to build a mobile rapid response team that would respond to people who are mentally unwell instead of the police. Uh, one in 10 calls to police are about being mentally unwell. Uh, so, po and police have proven time and time again that they are not equipped to solve that conflict. Uh, so we have medical practitioners and we have a conflict that can be solved very well by them because they are trained on how to do that. Uh, 
Uh, and so those are the areas by which we believe investments need to be made so that people who are sent to conflicts or violence or in deep need of real services don't get killers, they get caregivers. Absolutely. And that, that resonates. Um, I mean, that should absolutely resonate everywhere. As far as Zendesk goes, our, our global headquarters are in San Francisco, and we're located specifically in a neighborhood called the Tenderloin, which is a, a, a very well-known neighborhood because of the lack of resources it has. It does have a high crime, high violent, high addiction, high mental health crisis population. Um, and so this is that is a subject matter that comes up quite a lot in the neighborhood. And Mayor Breed recently announced um, how she's going to start diverting uh, funds that would normally go to traditional police force kind of work to street teams that can go out and provide that kind of mental health crisis intervention that, you know, San Francisco needs, the Tenderloin needs. And I, and I think it's important that you elaborated just yeah. the way you did, because um, when we hear of movements to defund the police, I think it's important to clarify that what that means is diverting funds to do this more appropriate conflict resolution. And so with that, I'm, I'm curious, I know that one of the goals of Rahim is to take that 5%, almost less than 5% average for reporting police brutality, increase it to 20%. Can you uh, scope out even a little further when you have that sort of level of reporting that can happen? What does that, what's, what's a landscape like that look for a community or a city or a state? Oh, yeah. Uh for a number of reasons, we will be able to understand why police are sent to your, uh, you know, are sent to your location in the first place, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. And so one of the ways that, uh, you know, right, you know, right now, um, uh, like I said, one in 10 calls in the United States for a police officer is for a person who is mentally unwell. Uh, and we never would have, you know, there, there are lots of reasons why we never would have found that out had we not had people uh, sort of like open this data so that we can understand why police are being used. So one way uh, that this is going to be helpful is we can demonstrate uh, and better understand and assess the needs of people. Police are being used in the United States as a service to resolve conflict, right? And we talked about this. Uh, they, they spend a lot of their time training and training to use tools, those tools, the tools of police are tools of violence. Uh, and so when a city leverages police as a service to resolve its conflict or the conflict within residency or throughout the city landscape, it is negotiating, the city itself is negotiating said conflict with the use of violence through police. So what that ends up doing is teaching both in our intimate relationships with our partners um, and, uh, and, and this is, you know, this is evident by the fact that police officers make up 40% of all the documented reported, um, uh, reported cases about domestic violence. 
It is because police spend most of their time negotiating conflict with the use or threat of violence. And and they are always in positions of power when doing it. And so, of course, their relationships can, if that's the way they solve conflict, can take a hit. And so I want, and so the idea here is that that is not only the case for police officers. If an entire society is leveraging a police force as a means of solving conflict, that conflict being a mental health crisis, that conflict being unequal access to health care or capital or uh, a, a, the conflict of anti-blackness and white supremacy throughout corporate cultures, if police or, or education if police are being used as tools to leverage and, and solve conflict, it teaches the rest of the world, citizens, people who live within it or under that society or government, it teaches them to also, it motivates them, us, all of us, to solve, resolve our conflict with the use or the threat of use of violence. And so it's interesting to me that when it comes time to uh, protest uh, violence by police, we fall into the space where you can't, you know, don't burn anything down because that's not the right way to respond to violence against your community or, or, or solving conflict. And so the people who are looters all of a sudden become the violent ones and the, and the governments with which, who have deployed police for years to negotiate conflict is now in this authoritarian figure saying, stop using violence to negotiate your conflict. And I think, <laughs> I think that that's what we, that's what, you know, when we leverage police in those ways, that's what produces that sort of, that in and of itself is a major conflict that the American people, uh, I think, really want an answer to. And, and also, don't take a knee at a football game, though, too, because that's not the way to exercise. <laughs> throw that out right. there. You can. <laughs> right. But I, I got down that path. And I'm sorry, you asked me an original question, which was about uh, which which was about what? Well, what the landscape looks like, and you, you actually did answer it, which is if we can begin to shift conflict resolution to not be so violence based well, then we're looking at solving systemic issues in a real way. So I think, I think you did answer it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's the only way and we can't, and I think it's, look, and a friend of mine says this all the time, we are always going to have conflict. There will always be harm as a result of it. It really boils down to how we respond to that harm. How are we responding to that conflict? And right now, as my friend says, the police are the lazy, are the easiest, laziest response we could come up with. We can, you know, we, we can do much better. And I think we owe it to every boy and girl, every gender, queer, trans person, black, brown baby in this world to ensure that we do our damnness. Absolutely. It's the 21st century, right? And we have the tools and the technology and we've grown emotionally. Like we can do this. Yeah. And, and along those certainly. lines, I, I think, so Raheem, it was founded in 2016. Is that correct? Did I have that date? 2017. 2017. Sorry. Um, and so 2017, three years later, but wow, a lot has happened since it's been founded. And I'm curious if the events over the summer here of 2020, 
um, with so much activity uh, within the Black Lives Matter movement, has that done anything to accelerate the growth or the work of Rahim? Yes. Yes, it has. And first, uh, just brief acknowledgments. I mean, it is fitting that three Black queer women help, you know, launched the movement that led to the largest protest in world history. It, it, is, it is nothing short of amazing. That's what I expect from Black queer women. Uh, and so I, I want to say that a, a lot of our achievements uh, and the acknowledgement that I think, uh, are, are, you know, and the activation of ordinary people from, you know, sit at home couch potatoes to in the street with a sign uh, is really owed to those uh, to those women. Uh, and we should never forget that. And uh, and I, I think that for for us, uh, we have seen an increase in police reporting uh, as the result of, you know, not, you know, people say, I don't want to go into the police station to file a complaint, not only because it's intimidating, because I don't want to get COVID, right? So there is also a clear reason why we need to have some, some central uh, reporting system uh, anyway in the age of COVID, which I think taught us a lot, okay? The other thing that we saw is uh, we began this program of connecting people to uh, to justice and healing, right? So that that is the uniting them with a family, with a local organization whose uh, movement values align with ours in in, in terms of uh, building alternatives that respond to conflict with care. Uh, it was setting them up with. Uh, a free lawyer who can help them assess their experiences and uh, whether they want to go public or whether they would like to file suit. And then about, uh, you know, and then we help people file formal complaints wherever they are in the country. And so that was something that came out of, um, uh, out of, in, out of both the increase, but also the increase in usage of our services, but also uh, an increase in demand for, us to do something about it beyond, uh, you know, right, which makes total sense, right? Because to fix police violence, such a, uh, you know, insidious problem, it's going to require both individual and systemic uh, uh, solutions. And so I think that that's, that was a, a big learning opportunity for us this year. Um, and then something that we are really excited about is that we recently launched uh, Rahim as a chatbot that can be downloaded and embedded on your website uh, within a matter of minutes. It takes no technical knowledge. It is just a few lines of code. We walk you through it and it takes about three to five minutes to put it on your site. And it then transforms any website any normal, ordinary website uh, into a website that can report police wherever you are. And so what we are asking organizations across the country, across the world to do is to go to rahim.org slash network, join 
our nationwide distributed reporting network of organizations across the world who have uh, our uh, Rahim chatbot on their website to make it easier for people to report police. And the fantastic thing about that is once they report police, they are, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, first of all, it's a chatbot that we use, uh, we actually use Zendesk uh, on the chat interface. And so uh, it allows you also to switch between Twitter, SMS, Facebook Messenger, in case you want to get off the site and go somewhere else with your, with your mobile. Uh, and so when you're done with that, uh, we connect you right then and there. Uh, our backend AI system connects people directly then and there to resources in their community, helping connecting them with a free lawyer, filing a complaint, and uniting them with a local organization. Uh, and and that was that couldn't have been uh, possible without uh, without Zendesk. So I also wanted to say thank you uh, for the support that you all have given us um, over the last few months in helping us build it. We're we're happy to do it and. Um, without trying to make this, you know, too self-serving. It is interesting that uh, a tool, uh, uh, an organization like Rahim, it, it's helping to solve this humanitarian crisis, but there needs to be a customer service aspect to it. Um, yeah. And we're really happy that you found a solution that that can help that. And, um, and, yeah. and it's interesting how, like, it's not only a customer service solution, but really showing how technology versus like, like you've, you know, you really painted that picture well of what it's like to have to walk into a police station and, and, and have a form and all that. And to really like make it this, you know, for lack of a better term, B to C friendly experience, I think is really important. That's how pe like we have a whole generation of, kids coming up now and young adults coming up now that that's their world. This is, this is how, if we're going to solve these crises, we have to put it in the language of our, these tech savvy generations. Yeah. Um, so kudos yeah. to you for figuring that out. <laughs> oh, the, the I, I mean, I can take some credit uh, in, in as much as I hired the people who uh, <laughs> to, to our team who built it. Uh, but, but the team here is, is, is really remarkable. Uh, and so I owe a lot, uh, uh, you know, all, all of that is owed to them. I, said, I just have a couple more questions for you. One is I yeah. do want to talk a little bit about this interesting intersection of technology and the nature of the work that Rahim is doing. And what's an interesting paradox is um, the there's a lot of mistrust around data collection. There is a lot of mistrust around reporting. So how are you solving for that? How are you um, navigating that that conundrum of of wanting people to report sensitive information? And often it's a demographic that has had to be mistrustful of of sharing that yes. kind of sensitive the information. Is warranted, and right. and so yes, how are you solving for that? Uh, that that is an ongoing uh, problem. That is the consequence of decades of unrelenting state-sanctioned violence against Black people levied uh, particularly and especially against Black people uh, that has created a collective sense of fear in, uh, 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 you know, a sense of fear in the collective Black psyche. And that will forever 
uh, because that is a consequence of the nature of policing, of the nature of anti-Blackness, of the nature of the particular uh, uh, environment that Black people find themselves when they are birthed into this world, um, that will always be a challenge for us as an organization in terms of building trust. Uh, and so the way that we have done that is been have been very clear about what our values are and the sort of world we want to see. And I think that that, when we get to that question, when we get to that question, right? Because the, you know, in the movement, there's a lot of these questions and most people don't ask them straight up. And the real question is like, hey, is your politics, you know, are your politics straight? Like, can we vibe? And, uh, and really, you know, most of the conversations I'm having with people are, are you a, re a reformist or are you an abolitionist? And so in, in my conversation, that's really what people want to know. So I say the first thing that we've been able to do is really, you know, we are abolitionists. We do believe in building a world that does not have any police and that does not have any prisons and responds to conflict and harm uh, with um, alternatives that respond to that conflict with, uh, with care. Now, uh, and so that's first and foremost, that we can't lead with technology, so to speak, right? So if we had led our every meeting with look how good our technology is, that wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't have worked. So I think we, we start from a very basic intention level, right? Really intention setting. This is who we are. This is the sort of world we want to build. Do you see yourself with us? Uh, and then we do that, and that's the nature of our coalition building across the country, right? So when individual Black people and people all over the country uh, report to Rahim, they are reporting to us, and then we are connecting them with organizations through our coalition building that we believe in, that believe in us, and that will take that person in and support them in whatever needs they have and really in, uh, embrace them as part of an organization. And what we end up doing toward the end of that, the reason that I, uh, and I'm gonna get around to like, if the essential question here is, how do you build trust in, un, un, uh, in, in a system that is untrustworthy? Um, or, uh, and, and so, uh, you, know, uh, you know, within a society that is untrustworthy, let's say that. Um, I, I think we end up doing that when we build those relationships with uh, with those local organizations, and then those local organizations, uh, you know, then those individuals uh, talk about us. They say, "Hey, this is fantastic. I was connected to this organization, and now I have a family here. I not only have a space for healing, but I have an opportunity to get involved and challenge." The, the nature of this system that harmed me once. And then they are also put at the table because we teach them and give them tools to help them advance policies that shrink the role of police. So we truly do turn, uh, we, do, we truly do want to walk a person through this journey that they have probably already been on, you know, uh, not to say that every person who reports to us is not already on this journey, but a lot of the people who report to us, we help put them on the journey toward uh, from a victim of police violence to an advocate for uh, police accountability and police abolition. Yeah, what a holistic experience! Kudos to you. And for oh, anyone who's listening, if you if you want to if you want to read a, a book that I found really helpful um, in understanding the the suspicion 
and mistrust uh, that especially vulnerable populations have around this kind of data collection. There's a, a really amazing book called Automating Inequality, and it's by Virginia Eubanks. Um, and really encourage everyone to read that if you're in tech and you're trying to do work where um, this kind of information would be really critical to your tool, read that so you can take an approach that that is that makes sense and will be successful. To close us out here today, Bryn, and I know we've taken up um, a good chunk of your time, and I could talk to you, honestly, I think forever. Um, and maybe someday we'll have a chance to do the world's longest podcast. <laughs> but until that day, what does Raheem look like three to five years from now? Oh, in three to five years, uh, we have gotten thousands of people across all 50 states in the United States, justice and healing. Uh, we have increased reporting from 5% again to 25% across the country. And that has produced data and evidence around how black and brown people are incredibly vulnerable and under attack by police, that we will have passed meaningful, tangible, concrete policies across the country that have limited the use of police in resolving our conflict and has invested in long-term solutions to responding to conflict with care. And we have demonstrated to the world that living without police is not a long, it, it is not an unworthy long shot an un, or an unlikely Hail Mary. It is what is necessary to heal. So we will have also in three to five years helped shape the landscape of people who struggle with what that world could look like. And we have demonstrated in concrete policy and practice how a world without police is not only visionary, imaginative, and glorious in all its ways, it is also doable. Well, you're an inspiration. Raheem is an inspiration. Um, I can't express enough to you how excited we are to have you on this podcast. And, and more importantly, that we can continue to be partners. We hope we're part of that journey with you. And I like that future you're painting. So whatever you need from us, we're here. Mm, thank you so much. This has been a great pleasure. Brandon, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm really looking forward to seeing the impact that Rahim will bring to our world. And listeners, if you want to help by adding Rahim to your website and join the Nationwide Police Reporting Network, go to www.rahim.org. That's R-A-H-E-E-M.org. And add the Rahim widget to your website. If you like this episode, help us grow. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. We'll be back next week with another story of a social-focused startup, Emilio and his founder, Uzoma Orshingwa. Until then, stay safe. And hungry. Hungry.